Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 5th, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Man, I have to say how staggering much has happened since last week's show. Every one of us has so much skin in this game that we could all be tissue donors at a burn unit. If you're not registered to vote yet, your deadline is after lunch today. Then follow closely. Your representatives votes on everything. Today, UCI Mirage School of Business professor Marguerite Wiersema will bring her strategic management expertise to focus on gender diversity in the boardroom, how U.S. companies compare with companies around the world, and the opportunity costs incurred. In the second segment, on the first day of their book tour, the dinner party download duo, Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newman, offer a hospitality manual for our time. Brunch is hell. How to save the world by throwing a dinner party. Published by Little Brown and Company. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Professor Marguerite Wiersema, Dean's Professorship in Strategic Management at UCI's Mirage School of Business. She is internationally recognized as a leading expert on corporate strategy and CEO succession and replacement with more than 50 publications and over 8,500 citations and counting, because the issue before us persists. Professor Wiersema's research has been quoted by the New York Times, the Financial Times, The Economist, Fortune, Business Week, The Washington Post, and her research has appeared in the Economist Intelligence Unit for their executive briefing. She served as associate editor of the Strategic Management Journal, the premier journal in the strategic management field, and serves on the senior editorial board of Global Strategy Journal. She served on the board of directors of the Strategic Management Society and served as their president of the corporate strategy. Among her numerous awards she's garnered is an honorary doctorate by the Copenhagen Business School, Strategic Management Society Fellow, the Distinguished PhD Alumni Award from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and is an international fellow for the Advanced Institute of Management Research in the United Kingdom. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts at Grand Valley University in Michigan and her master's and PhD at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. She joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Marguerite Wiersema. Yeah, thank you. Before we dive into how gender matters and leadership roles, corporate leadership roles in the case of your research, tell us about how the United States ranks internationally in this partition rate. Well, the U.S. is now a laggard if you compare us to other countries in Western Europe. Um, most of Western Europe have either mandatory or voluntary goals on board diversity. The first country to do so was Norway in 2003. And so we look, look across Europe and we see um, goals of 30 to 40 percent in terms of gender diversity on the board. Most countries have achieved these goals because the deadlines were 2017, 2018 for Germany and France. 
And the U.S. currently, if you look at the S&P 500, is 21.6%. So we're very low in comparison to the 30 to 40% gender diversity situation in Western Europe. Even by uh, non-European standards, when you compare us to a country like Brazil, which has a 30% goal, the U.S. lags. What's worse is that there's actually very little movement in the U.S. The number's fairly stagnant. There hasn't been any significant upward change. It's pretty much a a replacement. When a woman comes off the board, another woman might step on the board, but there's not a whole lot of additions in terms of women to the boards in the U.S. companies. And as a result, given the pace of change in the U.S., uh, we will not see 30 or 35% women gender diversity status until, you know, all of us are far gone, okay, (laughs) because it's not going to happen in our lifetime. We're going to lose ice and all the solar caps before this changes, uh, improves to a more representative level. Uh, Definitely. Well, all these these wonderful trends. Well, uh, what's holding us back? Uh, That's a good question. And I think it's um, something that can probably be uh, diagnosed in a variety of ways. The main um, issue that I think is that there's very little awareness of what is going on in Europe and other parts of the world in terms of board gender diversity. Um, I conducted a study with Louise Morse from the Copenhagen Business School, and we interviewed over 60 directors representing over 350 publicly traded companies. And what was really uh, very apparent is everyone in Europe was quite aware of quotas and goals because they're all in the midst or have experienced it. In the U.S., when we interviewed directors, on the other hand, almost no one was even aware that Europe had moved so drastically in terms of board gender diversity. So there's a lack of awareness of what's going on in Europe and the efforts underlying the progress that they've made. Secondly, I think um, there's a lack of transparency. Despite the fact that we have an awful lot of required uh, reporting by the SEC of public companies, the one uh, piece of information that does not is not required to be reported is the actual uh, demographic composition of the board. Really? Yes. That's really amazing. Yep. And so you literally have to take every company's annual report and take a look at who's on their board and calculate how many women and how many minorities are on the board. And so this is not something that's reported. It's not required by the SEC to be reported. So there's a lack of transparency, actually, in what is happening at the board level. So this puts the onus then on researchers like you and journalists to just dig into every every board of directors population, which are, there's hundreds and thousands of companies to, well, I, I don't know, what's the order of magnitude? There's, th- there's thousands. Thousands of com- <laughs> publicly traded companies. Right, yes. right, right. So they have to, it's not accessible. Yeah. It's work. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, the statistics, depending on the population, can vary. So S&P 500, the percentage is quite high, 21. If you go to the Fortune 1000, the number is actually more like 18%. So depending on the population that you go at, it can actually be lower. S&P 500 are much larger companies and have more gender diversity on their boards. But it is very difficult to to gather the data, but there are organizations that do do that. And um, despite that, the the lack of transparency in the sense that I don't think boards are aware of how low those numbers are compared to the numbers in Europe is a big problem. So I get this. 
awareness goes along with the, there's that's it's not even symmetrical the kind of participation in the research that you're you've been doing that that women are dancing circles around the competition for boardroom candidates and so there and women are working hard to, to sort of assess what the demographics are that's just this asymmetry is really offensive Yes, and I, 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 I think the, the thing that's really problematic or what I think is troubling is that there doesn't seem to be any momentum in the United yes. States to correct this deficiency, um, and certainly not in the current climate, political climate, that there's very little concern over issues of gender diversity at a variety of levels, you know, and board is one of them. So in one of the, uh, the listings of the, the biases that are operating, uh, around the director selection process, you noted in one observation, which I quote, chairmen are afraid of what others will think. And that just, that just confounds my thinking, that that is what leadership looks like? Isn't that ironic? Um, it is. And it's an issue that the Europeans faced earlier, right, with the quotas. Before the 2003s? Um, yeah. In, in, before they were, the quotas got imposed, most of the quotas got imposed in the last 10 years. And there was a tremendous resistance on the existing members of boards, mostly men, towards the imposition of quotas or voluntary goals. And what happened was these same men who resisted and came up with all sorts of reasons why these gender diversity goals shouldn't be there or quotas shouldn't be there, now have come around and come to recognition that there are a lot of qualified women and, you know, because one of the main arguments has right. always been there's a lack of qualified female candidates because when you ask a, ma a male board member what they're looking for, they say they want an ex-CEO or a former CEO or a current CEO. And yet most board members are not CEOs. But for some reason, that CEO executive title becomes the, the thing they're looking for in a woman. And yes, there are very few women CEOs. Even in the United States, you know, we have less than 5% women CEOs. So if that's the criteria by which a board member gets identified, you're not going to have a large pool. But what they recognized in Europe is that that was really something that they set up as a requirement. But in reality, most board members are not CEOs. So it's not a requirement for men. So why should it be a requirement for women? And um, by having quotas and goals in Europe, what happened, which was a the most dramatic thing that yes. happened to board selection, is that they then recognized that they actually had to identify the kind of person they would like on the board. So they went through a professional kind of search firm to identify the traits, characteristics, capabilities, skills, and knowledge that they would like in a board member. And what happened, of course, is then they started auditing who's on the board and recognizing that they could utilize skills and knowledge bases that they perhaps didn't have on the board. And that's how they started to identify women and adding women to the board. And this professionalization of the director search process is what improved board composition holistically. Not just the women that came on the board, but even men who came on the board now went through the search process of identifying what the company actually needed in the board member and then going out and finding suitable candidates with those type of backgrounds. So this professionalization of the board selection process improved the nature of board composition enormously. Both for men and women that yes, were serving. Absolutely. And every single board member we talked to mentioned this. This was this universal. They said prior to this, Board selection was who you knew, which meant that there was a lot of sameness 
homogeneity on the board as opposed to getting a diverse set of skills and knowledge bases that could actually add value to the company, they ended up with a lot of me too's. So there's a recognition now that this uh, professionalization of the director selection process has had huge impact on board composition, both in Europe and even in the US, which is beginning to do more professional uh, director searches as well. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI Mirage School of Business, Professor Margarita Wiersema, internationally recognized as a leading expert on corporate strategy and CEO succession and replacement, talking today about gender selection on U.S. boards of directors. That's a, it's comparative with other countries and where we're going with that now. Well, you've you've made the case for the differences when women assume leadership in the board. Break down what happened. You, you, you talked about the, the selection criteria. Are, with those being more professionalized, you're improving the pool of men that are appointed as well as women. But what happens when a woman is a part of the boardroom discourse and conduct and comportment and all of those elements that are going on in leadership? Good question. Um, so one of the things we noted is that one woman on the board is different than having two or more women on the board. So a, a like lot of major the, different. Major difference. The women we talked to, a lot of them were the initial woman on the board, and then a subsequent woman was appointed to the board mostly because of the fact that quotas mandated that 30 or 40 percent of the board become female. So they noticed a huge difference when the numbers went two or more. And, um, and, and I guess it's more comfortable for the women. It's one of the things that came out. But all of the women we interviewed indicated that there were substantial differences in how women behave and how men behave. And it has a dynamic in the board. And some of the things that were noted was that women like transparency. They like to have full information. They want everyone to have that full information. So there's a lot of you know, asking for data, asking for information before decisions or before opinions are, are issued. So women are far more, let me look at the data, let me look at the information before I make my opinion and not rush to judgment. They're thorough. Very thorough. You know, it, 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 it's kind of funny because it also showed up in the selection, right? Correct. That um, when these women were being interviewed for board positions before they even went to the interview process, which is a multi-stage interview process, by the way. Okay. They were always the best prepared candidate. And uh, they researched the company. They researched what the, uh, the board members for the firm. They knew more than any other candidate that was being interviewed. And as a result, when they finally got appointed to a board, they would always be told, you were the best prepared candidate. So they're kind of like the A students, you know. They uh, prepare going, for the exam. They knew it inside and out. They could exactly. Uh, they could better the, t the test exam writer. Yeah. And that behavior extends to when they become board members. So they're the ones that read um, the board uh, book. It's, it's no longer a board book. It's oh. an online board um, oh. portal where all the information is provided to board members ahead of a board meeting. And they're the ones that are the most thorough in looking at it. And as a result, they bring that studious behavior into the boardroom, meaning they want information and knowledge before they render opinion. So that's one thing. So that obviously is something that it's going to improve decision making just on, based on the facts that information is digested before decisions are made. Another thing that uh, changes uh, the nature of the board is that women are not as much I would say 
it's a hard way to describe it, but th there's less politics, perhaps, because of, of They're women. They're more earnest, the more critical thinking. Well, and so it's sort there's, of there's, le there's less ego, I s would say, around the table as a result of women. So the posturing and sort of the political playing and power playing that goes on between members of any type of team, whether it's a board or uh, whatever team you're in, tends to be more diffused because women are not so much into uh, this ego play that sometimes happens when a bunch of men are on a team or in a group. And so that changes the dynamics of the board because then board members are more willing to talk. And so it opens up the atmosphere. On, it makes it a more comfortable atmosphere within which to, to discuss issues comfortably. Um, so there's not such strong positions being taken. Sometimes I think boards are known. You know, one of the criticism of boards in general is that they tend to be too quiet on major issues that companies face and not being willing to take up and ask, um, you know, the kind of hard questions that sometimes need to be asked of management. And this happens because there's this atmosphere in the in the boardroom that no one wants to disrupt anything. No one wants to be like uh, the classic example is no one wants to be the skunk at the picnic. You know, you're on this exclusive club, you're a member of the exclusive club, and you don't want to be voted off the island because of your behavior. And so women are far more into making sure that they've really understood the issue and talked about both pros and cons of a recommendation from management, for example, before a decision is rendered, whereas men are much more likely to go along because they don't want to disrupt this, uh, the status quo. So I think, you know, if you think about that, the ego and the politics, the ability to ask hard questions and to play devil's advocate and think about the negative of a decision that management is recommending are important skill sets that should be on a board. So women add something to the decision making and to the thinking process that happens on a board. So for an economic perspective, there's so much added value squandered in that echo chamber of a political posturing board of directors. Absolutely, absolutely. So are you out in front with this research, uh, or is it conventional wisdom? Is conventional wisdom in, let's say, business researchers in this country right, right along with you? I mean, it's, it's the, the information is available. So uh, how are you versus other researchers in calling this, this deficit on our selection process in the United States? Um, that's a good question. Um, I would say that academia is not at the forefront. I think all of this um, push for board gender diversity has really happened from business practice, meaning women in business. Okay. So if you look at what's happened in the UK is, an, is a pretty good example. The UK has no mandatory quotas, but instead they have voluntary goals of 30% for the FTSE 1000. And um, they started very small, but they put together a committee of very strong uh, women in business, a lot of them from the fin finance uh, uh, sector, that set up these goals and then issued an annual report where they listed every single, they started with the FTSE 250, they listed every uh, company's gender diversity in, in this annual report that they issue. FTSC 250. Yeah, it's called financial. Um, Some financial. Uh, well, it's the uh, FTSC are the 250 largest publicly traded companies on the uh, major UK exchange. Okay. So um, th they have this annual 
kind of naming and shaming list is how I would describe it, although they don't name it that. <laughs> but where but they, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, where they literally list the companies in the order of their gender diversity. So the top performers are at the top and the worst are at the bottom. And what's happened is by actually uh, listing companies in the order of their gender diversity, what you basically have is a list that points to the people at the bottom, right? Right. And so every year, the companies that are at the bottom of the list struggle to get themselves off the bottom of the list. And if you look at this list year after year after year, you see that the average numbers have gone up enormously. Okay. And the companies that are at the bottom were the ones that made the most improvement, which is what you need, because some of these companies at the bottom literally had no women on their boards. And so if we could look at another bar chart, we could see that probably they're doing better. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the and, other chart. Yeah, yeah, on performance and so forth. But again, you know, the naming and shaming, which is the, how it happened in the UK in a very short period of time, less than five years, improve the gender diversity on the boards without having to go to quotas. But what enabled it to be effective okay. was the transparency and the actual public attention on these numbers. Because the report is called the Davies Report, which is after Lord Davies. And so it's issued by this uh, the da Lord Davies, and it's very public. The numbers are uh, posted in the Financial Times. Everyone knows w where their company is on the list. And then, of course, you know, actions are taken if they feel that they have to address a shortcoming. So you said they're not a country with a mandate, but but the transparency by virtue of institutionalization of that list by this FTSC 250 makes that it does it does the job. Oh, absolutely. So you can get there's a, a workaround. It's a matter that and, and institutionalize yep. accounting of the right. demographics and how far. How far would we be coming? Could the School of Mirage and a couple other business schools say, "Okay, this is this is our moment. We get uh, uh, we get let's say a, a big tech foundation or somebody else, and away we go. We're gonna we're gonna research this and post it on the billboards on every single yeah, interstate." it's you know I don't know on the where Super the, Bowl, right? I don't know where the momentum could be in the U.S. because yeah. believe it or not, the thirty percent club has expanded. We actually have a chapter in the United States oh, and we good. have a chapter in Canada, but it hasn't had the traction that it's had in the UK and part of the reason it's had so much traction in the UK is because uh, a lot of people signed on and it's gotten visibility there and we have other organizations in the United States like Catalyst whose goal has always been to improve gender diversity and their initial goal was 20 percent but the problem with a lot of those organizations is they don't really take any major action is how I would describe it they're kind of, in a way, corrupted by the status quo because if you look at who's on their boards, their company, all the all the major companies are on their uh, on their advisory board, and they're, so they're very reluctant to take action to actually move the uh, goalpost, which is what we're going to have to do in the United States is literally set a goal for ourselves. Twenty percent is not the goal. Thirty percent should be the initial goal. And the other thing that I think we really could benefit from is um, a requirement by the Security Exchange Commission, the SEC, that all boards report their gender diversity numbers. And if they did that, then someone could publish these very readily and you would get a lot more transparency and someone might actually start to do a naming and shaming list like what they did in the UK, which was so effective. Now, there has been initiatives to try to get the SEC to require this. And okay. um, the leaning uh, forward, yes. Yeah, the chair of uh, the SEC, uh, who just stepped down is, uh, due to the change in administration, right. 
was moving in that direction because the SEC, the chair was Mary Jo White. Right. She was very much in favor of uh, addressing what she saw as a deficiency. She even said it. It was a deficiency on our boards. And certainly some of the institutional investors are also concerned about the issue, especially now that the United States looks so out of whack with the rest of uh, the world, and especially Western Europe. But under the new chair, there hasn't been any traction, so I don't know where that is. And uh, Representative Carolyn Maloney from New York right. put together, you know, or, uh, trying to urge this requirement for gender diversity uh, as a SAC listing required uh, filing. So I don't know where we are, but I think we've lost some ground given the change in administration and the change at the SEC. But that's where some of the action in terms of setting uh, requirements for transparency would help an enormous bit in getting uh, more visibility for the, the problem that we have here. So that was a question I want to make sure we covered was with the deregulation underway with the current administration, the national deregulation of all financial institutions. I mean, it's hard to be hopeful. That's why I'm looking, I'm leaning, looking at you and thinking that's it's got to be an academic kind of rallying with a very big money, moneyed institution to make this a visible accounting. Well, I kind of uh, agree with your assessment of the political situation. I can't see any new regulations or new requirements coming out of the SEC, which is unfortunate because there was a lot of traction in this direction prior to the change in administration. I, I think one of the things that we could perhaps hope for is maybe starting in California, um, trying to get co companies listed in California to publicly report their numbers. That would be a step in uh, starting in that right direction. California has been the lead in a lot of what I would call thinking ahead in, on, on a variety of social issues and taking and moving forward, whereas the rest of the United States might be somewhat lagging. So this is an opportunity I think that California could seize is to require that uh, publicly uh, traded companies that have a significant business presence in the state report their numbers or even maybe publicly listed companies with facilities in the state. You know, some kind of uh, a requirement that we want to see what your board gender diversity numbers look like. Well, I guess that is this human nature problem where the individual with a with huge blind spots, perceptions of, of what the what normal is, what's acceptable, combined with the hardwiring of not wanting to give what they think they're relinquishing power, that it makes it, I mean, how, how can a good capitalist blow more success in their enterprise? I mean, y yeah. you're appealing to them yeah. for uh, improvements in their their whole general outlook. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and, that's crazy. Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, kind of to get a perspective on the issue and why this is an important issue, because to a lot of people, they're not going to say, well, who cares about the board? Who cares if there's three women on there or one woman on there? Well, to get, gain a perspective on the issue and the whole reason why Norway started the quota back in 2003 was because we have, if you look at college graduations, over 50% of college graduates are women. Entry-level employment in companies, over 50% are women. And you start to go up the pyramid in organizations, and the numbers of women in the percentage declines. And by the time you get to the CEO level, it's less than 5%. So there's something going on in the workforce where women start out 
actually at a higher percentage than men. And then over time, as we go up the organizational chart, the numbers get fewer and fewer and fewer. So this lack of women in senior management and under, in the layers under senior management is what precipitated Norway to institute a quota on board gender. Mm -hmm. And the reason they did that is they can't really legislate how many women should be in the executive suite, but because the board is a governance device, yeah. which means that they have an independent oversight over a public company, there are rules and regulations governing the board that are already imposed, and so they added this as an additional requirement. So this was a huge step, and the idea was by forcing gender diversity on the board, we might see this breaking through the barriers in the organizational hierarchy and getting more women through these higher levels of management. So that was the initial goal really behind board gender diversity was that we need to do something because these organizations are not promoting women or they're creating climates where women don't want to be promoted. Whatever the reason, there's not an, you know, if you look at the demographics, women don't seem to make it through these higher levels of the organization. So that was the idea there. Yeah. And it's still, if you think about that, that's a very important idea. So yes, most people are not aspiring to be board members, but the point is, if you have women on the board, it sets a tone that there's no excuses for other levels of management to not look and see how do we promote women, how do we make a create a climate yeah. where women want to continue to work in these organizations and not check out. Because a lot of women do drop out, and they obviously are dropping out not just for biological reasons, which is what most men seem to think, but for reasons that the atmosphere in these organizations... They're undermined at every stretch. Exactly. And that was one of the clear things that with the women that we interviewed, a lot of them were CEOs, a lot of them had gone through the school of hard knocks, mm. and their comment was being on the board was really not that hard after everything they have been subjected to in their successful executive career. Well, speaking of hard knocks, and I, in preparation for this interview, um, when I asked about the board of directors' role in corporate culture pertaining to sexual predation, your response begs my follow-up question while we're on air together, because I think our listeners wonder about this as well. Given that the domain of the boardroom is pretty exotic to most of us, you said, with regards to power imbalances, boards don't really deal with this issue since everyone on the board is by definition on a similar level, but we're talking about the landmines that go off and undermining and all that kind of thing. Help me understand that difference in where the role ceases to be the board of directors in dealing with the, that undermining and the, the culture of the corporation. Okay, so we're not talking about the board, but the organization itself. Well, we're talking about whether doesn't I yeah. I don't understand that the board doesn't have something to say about well, the culture and, and we, well okay okay so you're getting at that issue okay right. I think it, it it is obviously a concern all right and um, you know boards <laughs> boards have an increasingly um, broader set of tasks to deal with you know it used to be just the financials and right. sort of major strategic decisions and then executive compensation and so forth. But increasingly, boards have a, a wider variety of tasks that, having to deal with corporate social responsibility, as an example, has been a, a, an important goal in a lot of companies. But in the recent developments with regards to uh, women harassment and sexual harassment, for instance, I don't think it's 
filtered to the board yet. Really? But I think, well, with few exceptions, obviously Uber board has had to deal with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm thinking Miramax must have too. Yeah, okay. yes, exactly. There's several boards that now recognize that there were lots of warning flags that they chose to ignore, right? So I think there's increasing sensitivity. And I think the good thing is that in our social media age, things come to light and become uh, universally aware. You know, everyone knows what your company is doing in a, in a matter of seconds as opposed to decades. So there's a lot more transparency of what is going on in organizations. And so boards are, are increasingly more sensitive to how their companies are perceived in the public's eye. And that includes all aspects of the company, not just its products or services, how good of a corporate citizen it is, but also the organizational climate. So I think there, this issue of how organizations are open to women and what they're doing to make sure that women have equal opportunity in the organization and also are not harassed and felt horrible in their jobs becomes an important aspect of that organizational cultural climate. Well, I have still so many more questions. I'm going to see if we can hold a place for rejoining at, at a later date because I, I want to know about, you know, the the women you're bringing through at the School of Mirage, how, how aspirational, I mean, how, how you can get ahead of that, how you can acculturate them, acculturate the men that are in the program because you've got CEOs coming back for their their, their master's degrees in business. So I, I have so many things to ask, but we have to close this lovely program uh, together right now. Well, thank you, Claudia. I enjoyed my time on your show. Thank you so much. That is all the time. As I said, I really appreciate your expertise. My guest was Marguerite Wiersema, holding the Dean's Professorship in Strategic Management at UCI's Mirage School of Business and internationally recognized as a leading expert on corporate strategy and CEO succession and replacement, talking about gender mattering on U.S. boards. We'll be right back after a very short station break with dinner party download duo Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newnham to roll out on this day, the first of their book tour of the all-new Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests are Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newnham, co-hosts of the Banner podcast, Dinner Party Download, to serve up their brand new book, Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party, an altogether intentional screed on how civilization might still be held together. Rico's <coughs> public radio work has been also been heard on All Things Considered, Weekend America, The Savvy Traveler, but mainly known for his reporting role on Marketplace. Prior to his upgrade to radio, Rico wrote for MTV, ABC, Fox Family, and the Cartoon Network, and had freelancing stints with the Wall Street Journal, LA Weekly, and Dual Magazine. Rico attended the University of Pittsburgh and completed his Master's of Fine Arts from the American Film Institute in LA. Brendan Francis Newnham is a writer-producer and a radio host, which includes credits of Fresh Air with Terry Gross and Marketplace. He created and produced Audio Vant, a seminal culture podcast, as well as Dinner Party Download. His written work has appeared in Vice, Savera, and CNN.com. Brendan attended Rutgers University and completed his JD at Temple Law School. Both Rico and Brendan have wrapped their dinner podcast last week before a live audience in Seattle, quickly transitioning now from host producer roles to laid-back book signers. Rico <coughs> comes to us 
from Pittsburgh and Brendan from the Big Apple. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newman to a spoiler-free interview. Oh, thank you. Uh, this is Rico. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having us. This is Brendan here in New York. Oh, I just love hearing these two voices on our little community radio station. Well, <laughs> congratulations. No, it's not, I'm not kidding. Congratulations on a terrific 10-year run with Dinner Party Download and turning it into a pithy and, as I mentioned, intentional read just in time for the holidays. It's both a hospitality guide and a pretty decent holiday gift. I just want to make sure everybody has that impression. Well, well thank you. Yes. Well, when, and, and by the way, it's uh, there, the only spoiler alert is, folks, if you read, the, when you read this book, you'll be, if you're reading it uh, in a solitary setting, you're going to be laughing a, a, alone, and and it's it's all right because everybody else who reads this book inevitably <laughs> is doing it too. So well, I'd like to get a little some of the sort of intimate background. So when was each of you first onto this notion of genuine genial hospitality? Tell us about your formative experiences. Oh, well, that's a good question. Yeah, I think both of us grew up with families, and Brendan will speak to the specifics of his own. But I think both of us grew up with families who were. Uh, people who like to have people over. I certainly remember uh, dinner parties, and the way that I, I often describe it is I remember uh, dinner parties as being wonderful because I got to sit in, yes. the, uh, in, the, in the TV room watching Battlestar Galactica, listening to them getting happier and happier as the night went on in the dining room. And I just remember it being very pleasant and very cozy, and uh, it was also nice that I got to watch TV all night unsupervised. But that, that was my first, I think, experience. Yeah, and I grew up in, uh, my mother is a first-generation immigrant, and uh, my father's the youngest of eight. And wow. so my house was always filled with people, um, relatives and people visiting from, from Europe and people debating the war uh, over, over in Croatia mm -hmm. at the time and other places. And it was just uh. kind of rollicking um, uh, free-for-all, particularly on Sundays, but also on other days of the week. And I, I just loved it. And I feel like it's kind of what gave me the social confidence to go on and, and work in radio. Well, your book is working its magic. When I tell people I'm, I'm reading this book or that I was going to have you on, they immediately, they immediately feel an accountability. They fess up to coming up short on the hospitality sheet. So, uh -huh. that, so that's, uh, it, it's, you're, you're making your, your moves, your impression here. So Very I good. wonder... Uh, I, I just have to quickly get this in and get the heck out of the way here. But I wonder at whether, and I'm, I'm going to use a psych, it's a, 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 a in astute kind of a ethnicity uh, characterization, but I wonder if white bread, because this is what my experience is in cosmopolitan uh, Orange County. I wonder whether white bread folk, they're so neurotic about holiday entertaining because they're making up for the lack of real hosting the entire rest of the year. So let's, uh, let's have you talk about some of the guidelines that constitute a legit dinner party to get people on their way before it's too late. Oh, well, well, first of all, we'll say that, you know, we encourage any sort of gathering, whether or not it's technically a dinner party. I think the, right. the goal of our book, when we're, when we're anti-brunch, we're really saying we're anti-just going out to a restaurant and checking out with a group of people. And when we say we're pro-dinner party, we're really about encouraging people to invite people into their homes and uh, share, share a little bit. So, hey, if people are doing holiday parties, we're okay with that. Although technically, unfortunately, a holiday party does not qualify as a dinner party. Uh, because it has an agenda, which is to celebrate a holiday. Right. And uh, we think dinner parties in the truest form are really, uh, it's right there in the title. It's about having dinner and it's about a party. And there should really be no sub-agenda of celebrating an event or maybe a professional kind of meet and greet. 
uh, we, we are in the purest sense. We just want people to kind of gather with their friends and uh, and engage in food and conversation. That's right. And also, uh, in our opinion, a dinner party is a way to make a dull, ordinary week less dull and ordinary. It sort of spices it up. We call it recess for yes, adults. Yes, it's lovely. something to look forward to at the end of a work day, perhaps, or at the end of a work week if you're doing it on the weekend. Whereas if you've got a holiday and you're having a dinner party, well, the holiday already is providing, you know, possibly vacation time or, you know, special time with friends or family. It's already kind of a special time. You don't need it to be a dinner party. You don't need the dinner party to spice up that week. The way we describe it is it's kind of like, you know, uh, having, I don't know, taking your kids out for ice cream on Halloween. Right. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) And in addition, a holiday party, you're likely to invite your family. And for our purest dinner party, we we ask that people only invite less than 25% of their family uh, at the gathering itself because, you know, it's important to bond with family. But as soon as you insert kind of family, too much family, it immediately rolls. You start to settle into your role as child or family politics or uncle or aunt and it just kind of changes it doesn't give you the pure relaxation and restorative um Mm -hmm. uh, hospitality that is necessary where we think is helpful from a dinner party that's right and and at a holiday party you're probably going to have too many family around for it to truly qualify as a relaxing dinner party they remind everybody of why it was that you always had to have a hamburger patty at thanksgiving sort of like (laughs) get that out of the way no no that's (laughs) none of this stuff is made up it's all true well i i want to uh, there's many themes to weave in here, but I want to make sure that your thread throughout in Brunch's Hell, it deals with bipartisan aspect of guests. It's very important that you want to bring guests of all stripes in, that people do risk, in a sense, having a multitude of political backgrounds that they bring to that dinner, and it's not mm-hmm. as fraught as they think. You're, you're very reassuring on that account and very intentional. Yeah, well, I mean, I would I would say that it can be fraught, and uh, certainly we have, uh, you know, in the in the wake of this last election and some of the yes. things that are going on, we've really thought hard about this. But we do really feel like, you know, if if you can't discuss politics in a venue as kind of uh, uh, non-challenging as a dinner party and relaxed as a dinner party, then we're sunk as a country, and we need to figure out how to do this, and we should figure out how to do it, and we believe that we can. And in the book, we kind of. We give a lot of tips about how to have a good conversation, but also how to have a political conversation without wanting to kill each other. And they're fairly simple tips, one of them being that you should just remember that you're not going to change anyone's mind over the course of a single dinner party. Once you realize that you're not going to win the political argument and in a four-hour-long dinner party over some you know, roast chicken, it becomes a lot more relaxed. State your case what the other person has to has to say go back and forth a little when you find that you're restating the same thing over and over move on to the new star wars film because there's inevitably going to be a new star wars film and and the old etiquette guys is the idea is not to talk about uh politics or religion and we actually we we disagree with that 100 percent okay in that if not here where else because at work that's understandable that maybe you don't want to go toe-to-toe or, or bring right. up some, some uh, irreconcilable differences there. Um, in other environments, it's not the play. If you're at your child's soccer match, is that the time that you want to start talking on the sidelines and creating a, an uncomfortable atmosphere? But at a dinner party where someone's invited you into their home and is sharing food and maybe, maybe had a glass of wine or not, but there's just a warm atmosphere, um, if you're moved to discuss the news of the day, 
what better place to kind of explore ideas? And uh, but you have to do it respectfully, and um, you have to um, you know uh, make sure that also there are a couple different opinions um, spoke you know spoken to at the at the party itself. And yeah, that's part of why we why we think a dinner party can be an important place to kind of foster a more civilized society. Yeah, we we actually do encourage people. This is sort of to your question. Yes, we encourage people to invite. You know, I, I think that we all think of dinner parties as these like super, you know, overly safe, let's say, spaces. And it is. It's a, it's a safe space to a certain extent. But it's a place where I think people tend to think that they can retreat into their bubble. And I don't think that, that that has to be the case. Certainly on our show, we always found that, like, our favorite shows were the ones where we had a wide variety of different kinds of people and different points of view represented. And it certainly makes for a more interesting conversation. It makes for maybe a little more edgy conversation. But it's a safe enough space that I think people can pull it off, and it, it would make sense for people, We and, and we hope people take this to heart, to invite folks over that don't necessarily agree with you. Have folks over that, you know, are going to challenge your points of view. And we have quotes from all, you know, walks of life and all sort of yes. political persuasion speaking to that. We have Ava DuVernay, the, uh, create, the director of Selma, saying that she really thinks it's a problem that she doesn't know, for instance, a whole bunch of, you know, conservative Christians that she can have over to dinner and hear them out. And when she made her documentary about prison, she right, actually right. had to talk to some of them and learned a lot. I remember that, and the Encore show was so good. To, that's what's good about the Encore is you go, I get to hear her say that again. It was, it, was, it was amazing. Well, my guests, for those of you who just joined us, are Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newnham, Dinner Party Download Duo on Ask a Leader, rolling out. This is their first day of their book tour for all of us to read. Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party, published by Little Brown and Company, illustrated by Fanny Blend with one illustration that's very scatological. I loved it. You got it, everybody. It deals with. A, a roasted uh, fowl. Ava- this is available at your favorite uh, independent bookstore. Well, I want to. I want to bash a little bit. Some. Uh, I want to get bring in. Some, it wouldn't be an interview if we didn't have a few etiquette things brought up. So one, one. Uh, it was a, a, an etiquette question dealing with. I had to contend with my former co-host, the dishwasher in the unit. I had to subtly battle him about his need to wash the dishes right after dessert was barely mm. consumed. And I guess that's why he's a former co-host. So <laughs> oh you, would, you take that up. And then another, um, another thing is, I, I need your help right now in the show, is uh, in the local culture where I'm hosting, the academics that's in spades here, they tend to turn in early. They've got to get up early to discover a new element on the periodic <laughs> chart or finish up the latest tome on gerrymandered legislative districts. I've always been concerned <laughs> that when I ask people to adjourn from the dining room table to the living room it's a it's an invitation for them to leave the house uh, can you help me with that all right hmm. well I'll, back here. I'll take your last question first and then maybe rico can take the other one which yeah. is you know we do we do on our guidelines kind of suggest days to have dinner parties right uh, we don't think people should have dinner parties on sundays because on sundays you're worried about mondays and then on Mondays, that's a bad day for dinner party because you're doing the things you should have done on Sunday. <laughs> and then Tuesdays, we contest are, are just Tuesdays are just dumb, so you don't want to do a dinner party. And I, I bring that up because the day of the week is important because yes. if you're having dinner parties on those days. People do have to work, and you do need to be mindful of the time. Um, and that's why we think ideal, you know, peak dinner party days are Friday or Saturday. Um, and so that's the ground rules. And I think um, you know when you make that pivot from the dinner table. To the to the living room, I think if you maybe serve desserts in the living room or oh. offer drinks and coffee during that pivot, I think that gives them a reason to stay. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you can also take care of this in the invitation. You can say, um, you know, something like we're serving dinner and, and des- you know, dessert at fruit and cheese after or something like that. Or, or you can make a little, like, hint that you want it to be, the evening's going to be longer than just food. You know, like, co- you know, come for food and stay for conversation. And you can telegraph um, what, what you want out of your own dinner party. That's well, true. That's... Uh, we, we also do mention there are several types of people that can come to a dinner party. Oh, yes. And one of, one of the standard types of people that might come to your dinner party is a hipster. Right. And very often yeah. we will say, you know, like we say, for instance, that it's uh, polite to show up 15 minutes late to a dinner party because it's very rare that a host is ever ready on time. Right. However, a hipster might show up early to your dinner party because they have someplace way cooler to go to afterwards. Right. And you just have to reconcile yourself to that person. That's just, that just may happen. You may lose the hipster between dinner and dessert. Um, to your first question, though, which is about uh, oh, washing it's such the dishes. A, it's such a um, downer. I mean, it was such a physical and a mental exercise for me to deal with. <laughs> this person had to, <laughs> had to start washing dishes immediately Always. After it was like a, a sort of an Aspie exercise. I couldn't, I, you know, what what is not clear to this person <laughs> about the clanging? And it's not because I live in a palace either. That that kitchen, the that sink isn't that far from the dining room table. Yeah. Yeah, well, we that do, sounds kind of say. passive-aggressive, honestly. It, that, ooh, you it named is. it. You and named it. it is kind of, for many people, it is the universal symbol that you're kicking them out. That yeah. That you want them to go home. Uh, and we do recommend in the book that you don't really have to do dishes at your dinner. You, we actually say you don't even need to do most of them, you know, before you go to sleep. You should soak certain things so that they don't, you know, you don't die from graft yeah. onto your pots and pans. But uh, you can leave certain things just for the morning. However, I do think if you're going to do this, you can encourage somebody to come in and talk with you while you're doing it. Like, for instance, if you have a best friend at the dinner party who you didn't get to talk to during the dinner for whatever reason or during the, the earlier part of the party, and you're just like, hey, come into the kitchen with me, and then you two are talking while you're doing the dishes, that may be signals that this dishwashing is still part of the party. No one's kicking anybody out right now. So you can kind of use it as two things. You get to catch up with somebody, and you also get to send the signal that nobody's going home yet. But I think in that latter case, you would definitely need a co-host, because I think if the host and their best friend leave into another room, that's really, you know, you're leaving the conversation to chance. Yes, Um, that helps. You know, we think once once you're at dessert and people are sipping port and uh, making weird conversation, you've, you've reached the, the finish line and you can now, as the host, really relax. And um, yes, although there are circumstances where doing the dishes are acceptable, it really is disruptive and probably going to, you know, disrupt the, the, the vibe that you've created. You've worked so hard to create that. That's evening. right. That's right. So that's the cues. Now, I, I'm not done with etiquette. Uh, you offer some examples of uh, goodbyes the, uh, of many ethnicities, but I wonder whether you intentionally have taken guests off the hook of expressing thanks, or did you just run out of words allowed by your publisher? So, oh no, we absolutely the first. So this is the the last section of the book where we talk about all the different kinds of goodbyes. Right, one right. Of which is, of course, the well-known ghosting, aka the French goodbye, aka the the, the French exit. I'm sorry, and we do say that we don't advocate that just leaving without telling anybody that you're leaving right? because one of the very few things a host does get for throwing you this party and giving you free things other than the bottle of wine, which we insist you must bring. It's in the formula there. Right, right, right. But the only other thing they really get is your thanks and your gratitude. So you should absolutely at least thank the host. If you need to split really fast, at least find the host and thank them. We're not letting anyone off the hook. But, but I'm, um, there's a, 
there's a particular culture I, I was an exchange student at, and they their thanks started out from the invitation, from the front door, leaving that night, and then the next time you talked to them, whether in person or over the phone or something, you you said thanks. I, I'm still very old school about this, guys, where a thank you the next time you see them, that they remember, or, or they dice uh, off an email, I a think, text, or a thank yeah. you note. I I'm think that's still... important. I mean, we dis- we discussed part of the power of the dinner party. One of our principles yeah. for why we should feel like there should be more dinner parties. Uh, the principle is to to give and let give. We right. say, which means you know the act of generosity is is there's social science behind this is healthy for people to give, and the act of gratitude is also healthy for people Very. to receive. And that's an exchange that you don't necessarily find in a restaurant where there's a commercial transaction. Sure, maybe your waiter's nice, but you're paying you're paying your waiter. Um, so the purest uh, exchange of gratitude and generosity comes at a dinner party. And um, you're right; we don't explicitly write out how you should, whether you should send thank you notes. We, you know, don't don't steal our thunder here. We might have a sequel to our book oh, called right. Thank You Notes. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm thank revealing you. it here now. Okay. But, um, we do. Wow, say, I didn't know that. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll I'll yeah. send you a message through your your agent here about the you know the whole some of those uh, examples there. Like the, so, the Danish thank you. So it'll be instead of all those ethnic goodbyes, it's all the cultural goodbyes, and you know, and then you get back down to how many people are, the, the anarchy of kissing and hugging and all that kind of thing. Well, I I've, I've got to give you guys both a chance to let us know when we can meet you on your book tour. There's the uh, you're on the East Coast. You're working your way toward L.A. on December 9th. That's the yeah. Stories Book Fair, and then the Inner Sanctum KPCC ticket holders uh, also on the 9th in Pasadena. Any, are you going to be coming even to Orange County? Could you possibly think of that? Hey, make I, it happen. We do us. think about it, certainly. The, the trick with having a book come out in the beginning of December, the w- wonderful thing is yes. it's available for holidays. But the tricky thing, as you said at the top, people are having a lot of holiday parties. So we have, we have events booked in Portland, Winston-Salem, Pasadena, downtown L.A., New York, D.C., leading up until about mid-December. And then we're going to pause a little bit, let everyone drink their eggnog, um, right. do their thing, and then you may be seeing us on the other side of the holidays. Um, I could see um, definitely Rico based in L.A. visiting Orange County and maybe yeah. the Bay Area and me okay. visiting Boston and some other places on the East Coast. Indeed. I'm, I'm looking at you, all of you breweries. I yes. think you should maybe, all you, all you San Diego area, Orange County. Oh, they're in Orange County. You, yeah, yeah. We've got it all. Yeah. Well, yes, I, if you would host some of those, I would really like that because I enjoy beer. Okay. Well, we, we know a lot about what you guys enjoy. Thank you. And then we, we enjoy you from afar. You have no idea how many weekend nights some of us just try Because I like to hear it out of the radio, not out of the podcast. It sounds much better to me. So it's uh-huh. uh, there are we have dinner party downloads, sort of the vicarious dinner, just the way you did. You do, do mapping it all the way out from the icebreaker to the edit questions oh and the small talk, the sound uh, and the playlist. And we're going to go out with, uh, with Tony Bennett for the reasons that are obvious between the we three of us here. Well, gentlemen, smooth sailing through your book tour book tour and robust sales and a happy transition to the um, you know your gig from being this um, you know the producers to the laid back as I said book signers thanks for being on the show today <laughs> thanks so well, much I can't thank you enough for having us on thank, thank you, so you. dinner party download co-hosts Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Newnham there you go so we're gonna say uh, goodbye to them and Wish them well on the, the list. There, as I said before, the dinner party download a Brunch's Hell Manual for our time. It's published by Little Brown and Company and available at your favorite independent bookstore. 
Speaking of dying together, the Arab Civic Council will be convening a meal with refugees and elected officials under one roof to speak about the challenges of integration and the resources available to refugees and immigrants in the greater LA area. Issues are intensifying, so uh, there's a lot to cover. It's on Saturdays, December 16th from 2 to 4 at the Olive Tree Restaurant in uh, Anaheim at 518 South Brooker Street. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from George Mahaffey. He's the Vice President for Academic Leadership and Change for the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, a man who carries water for groups like the Cal State University System and the National Legislature. He's what you could call a lobbyist, with an eye particularly on low-income, first-generation, and students of color. Then, Cassandra Miller, the CEO of See Jane Go, a drive-share service launched in Orange County for Women, by Women, and so much more, heading out our door. She's got an app for that. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Just the thought of you. Eu sou muito em ti.